invite you to turn back to Revelation chapter 1, to the passage which was read in your hearing concerning the vision that John received from the Lord Jesus Christ and was written for the church of all the ages, or for us as well. I won't read the passage again. We're going to go through it in some detail, so we will consider that together this morning. And the sermon is entitled, Christ's Care for His Church. Let's once again seek God's face for His blessing. Our God, we have read these words of that the Holy Spirit communicated by the messenger appointed by God to John the Apostle in order that it might be communicated to the seven churches and now, Lord, uh, to us, the people of God at City View Baptist Church on Flatbush Avenue in your presence. And we ask now, our Lord, that these would be more than just sounds in our ears. But we plead with you that by your Holy Spirit, these words may live in our hearts, that they may be received into our innermost being, that they would be sweet to our taste, and they would be strengthening to our souls. We pray that you would be glorified and honored in the proclamation of the very... Uh, Revelation of Jesus Christ to us, grant that every single person under the sound of the word of God may be able to receive it with reverence and love and faith. Come and bless us, our God, and display your care for your church. We ask it through Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This passage provides us with the beginning of the vision which the majestic Christ revealed to the Apostle John and to the seven churches of Asia Minor. This vision and the book of Revelation include many things which are difficult to understand. Uh, they, there are uh, depths in the book of Revelation. When one of the old writers said is above the heads of most of the people of God. But the portion that we have this morning in chapter 1, which the Lord uh, is a portion which the Lord himself commends to us. It's a portion of the scriptures and we should think about it in the way that Paul described all of the scriptures he, when he said that all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable. It's profitable for teaching. Profitable for reproof, it is profitable for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. All of the scriptures, by the wisdom of God and by their connection with his immediate activity, is profitable. The word of God that comes forth from the mouth of God, that comes to the people of God, is never separated from God. It always comes with the authority and the power of the God who speaks it. We expect that God is placed in this book in the Bible 
in the book of Revelation particular truths, instructions, exhortations, which you and I need. Furthermore, it can't not be uh, less, anything less than sinful to intentionally ignore what God says in his word. Describe to us here, especially this, since this is our portion this morning in the very first chapter of this book. You see how it is described in the first three verses of Revelation chapter 1. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus, even to all that he said, saw. Blessed is he who reads... And those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. And so the Lord Jesus Christ has given a blessing, and he has declared that the very reading of this word and the hearing of this word conveys blessings upon those who hear it. And of course, that depends upon the manner in which we hear it. To hear it and ignore it, to hear it and push it aside, to hear it and say it has nothing to do with me, is a very great sin. Even if we suspect that there are things we will not be able to understand completely, and uh, when do we ever understand completely the, the depth of the Word of God? Probably never, ne never in this life. Still, we ought to approach it with conviction that God has put needful truths here for us. And we look up to him in faith and plead for him as our brother has prayed and we continue to plead that God will minister to us through his word. As we look into the text today, we are in a portion which is much clearer than other parts of the book. So I hope that we will be able better to profit from it. So I have, first of all, I have, I have uh, three points. Typical three-point Reformed Baptist sermon. First of all, we're going to look at an overview of the opening vision. Secondly, we're going to look at the, per the person who thus speaks to John. And three, we're going to look at a matter of interpretation. And then the lessons we ought to take away from this portion. First of all, we want to look at an overview of this opening vision given to the Apostle John from the Lord Jesus Christ. And we want to consider John's circumstances. John's circumstances. The Apostle John, as you know, was exiled on a small island on the southwest coast of Asia Minor, now called Turkey. So you remember that, that box-like, uh, rectangular-shaped piece of land called Turkey today. In those days, Asia Minor, it's called Asia. It was a place of exile, this little, little uh, rocky island off the coast of Asia Minor, uh, you can you can find it actually on Google Maps. You can put in Patmos and you can actually see the way the island looks today. It was a place of exile. It is not now, but it was. Uh, John does not call it that. He has already been suffering persecution, as many other Christians had also been in that day. And the letters in chapter 2 and chapter 3 show us the circumstances of John and of those believers, uh, the entire book shows us the trials that they were enduring. 
John also indicates that he had been placed in what I'm going to call the prophetic mode. Uh, he was given prophetic abilities by the Holy Spirit. He says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. I was in the Spirit. And that describes the filling of the Holy Spirit to enable him not only to hear the words, but to understand them and to convey accurately what God said. I was in the Spirit. And we're told a specific day of the week, uh, which, which tells us this is an historic event. This is not a dream. This is not somebody's fancy that they sat down at a desk and said, well, I think it'd be good, be good to write something uh, really imaginative and really stirring to the people of God. No, it was a specific day when John received the revelations from the Lord Jesus Christ as described. And it is it is the, the Lord's day. The, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, the day especially associated with the Lord Jesus Christ, the first day of the week. No other day was so fitting for the Lord to give his people a direct word as the first day of the week, the day on which Jesus had risen. So those are John's circumstances. And as we continue our overview of the opening vision, we, uh, I want you to see how John's attention was alerted. John's attention was aler alerted. And you have John there saying that he heard a trumpet, a loud trumpet voice speaking. And I don't know how many of you have ever tried to play a trumpet. I played a number of wind instruments when I was in junior high school and high school. I played baritone horn, but the, the trumpet has a very piercing sound. And John says that there was a voice speaking to him like the voice of a loud trumpet. It means it was commanding. You think about those, uh, those men who play uh, the various tunes for soldiers in the camp, and when they, uh, they play that uh, that trumpet sound of attention. It's with a trumpet that they do it, and it commands attention. It's the whole point of, the, of John's, um, John's description. It is, uh, it is something that's happening behind John. So if you picture John in a cell in the prison, and there's a voice behind him, it must have been very shocking because John was probably alone in that, in that place at, that, at this point. Uh, there is this uh, urgent, abrupt call to attention from behind him. It's very interesting because there's really no introduction, no gentle introduction, easing into the matter. And you can imagine yourself if you were in a prison like this and someone came to visit you, they would probably come in escorted by uh, some uh, officer of the law, and he, he would appear into your cell with the key of the lock and say, you have a visitor. Nothing like that's happening here. The first thing that happens to alert John that there's something he needs to listen to is the, the striking words. Write what you see in a book. Now imagine you, you wherever you may be, and somebody starts it speaking authoritatively and powerfully, write what you see in a book. And you have a, a sense of what's happening to John is the command of the voice in verse 11. In those words, it's abrupt and it's urgent. 
And he's told to send the things in the book to the intended recipients, seven historic churches in Asia Minor. The Lord has a strategic purpose in sending this, these, these letters to these churches. Now, there were other churches not far away. There were other churches in Asia Minor at that time. But in God's purpose, this book would be given to the churches of Christ existing then and to all the churches from that time forward. Because these are words, dear brethren, which have been communicated to the church now for over 2,000 years. So that's John's attention alerted. We have his circumstances and his attention alerted by these words. And now we look at the vision that John saw. All this under the overview of the vision. The vision John saw. Well, if you were sitting alone in a room and you had this alarming experience of a loud voice speaking to you, uh, there's only one thing that you can do. It's, 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 it's involuntary, right? Because you hear this trumpet-like voice. What do you do? Well, you turn. John does what's only natural. He turns to look. And it's very interesting that John tells us that the first thing he saw was a group of lampstands. This is very surprising, is it not? Given the fact that there is this person who has been speaking to him in plain sight. And the person speaking is so majestic. It's surprising that John sees anything else. This is a very natural way in which your, your, your mind works when you go to look at things. There are certain things that will stand out. And John says the first thing that stood out was seven golden lampstands. Lampstands. They are great lampstands. These are not small end table lamps I have in my bedroom. A small end table with a relatively small light, it's enough to shed light on the room. Uh, there's a ceiling light, which is, gives better light, but uh, these are no small end table lamps. These are very impressive, large, golden, gleaming lampstands. And John would perceive from his knowledge of the temple and of the Old Testament that these were like the candlesticks of the temple, the lampstands of, say, Zechariah chapter 4, one of those uh, Old Testament prophecies where it speaks of the lampstands uh, with, uh, with oil. So that's the first thing that John sees, is large, impressive, beautiful lampstands. And then... The second thing that he notices is the majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ described in our text. And it's a, it's, what can I say? It's, it's a, a, an odd description of a person. In the middle, verse 13 of the lampstand, I saw one like a son of man. In other words, he was, a, John knew it wasn't something inhuman. It was a man, and he is clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white, like white snow, like, like wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. 
His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. And he holds in his right hand the stars, the seven stars. This is the description. Now, there are some figurative elements, and um, it would not have sounded as, it would not have looked as strange as it might sound to us when you try to imagine these things, some figure with a sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth, you'd say, well, that's, a, that's an odd figure, right? But uh, these, uh, these elements, of course, of his appearance had meaning, as the passages go on to show that every one of these features is listed in the seven letters. And remember, it was not that long ago when I preached to those seven letters and we considered some of these figures. So they, they were appropriate. They were appropriate teaching tools of the Lord Jesus Christ. But John is not struck with a sense of something odd looking, but he is struck with the majesty of the person who is so represented before him. So it would have, it, these various uh, elements of the description of Christ would not have been odd to John. They would have been impressive and they would have been instructive. The picture that John has here in this portion is about a man dressed as a priest. He has a, he has a robe reaching to the feet and he has a sash across his chest. And in the Old Testament, the priests were dressed in priestly garments, distinctive for their role in the worship of God. And they paid attention to the candlesticks. The Lord Jesus here wears priestly garments. Several features of it made clearer the seven letters are there. Uh, but the most mysterious one and the one that, we, that the Lord calls to attention himself is that in his, uh, what was it, in his right hand, uh, in his hand were seven stars in his right hand. So that's the picture that, uh, that John sees. This is the vision that John saw. And then there is the last thing in the overview, John's reaction and Christ's response. John's reaction and Christ's response. Now, this man, John, had the most intimate relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. You remember the way that John describes himself in the, uh, in the Gospel of John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. It was, it was actually both a sense of wonder and a sense of humility. John doesn't say it's me, John. He says, the disciple whom Jesus loved. And then you have to figure from the clues that this is the apostle John. He was the man, the, the disciple whom Jesus loved. The, the one who leaned on his breast when the Lord instituted the Lord's Supper, celebrated the Passover and had the Lord's Supper. And uh, he has a, an inspiring sight of the resurrected, risen Jesus Christ. And he does something that you probably wouldn't do when you came into the presence or when one came into your presence who was a very close friend of yours and you had a very close relationship for many years. John falls down in his presence like a dead man. Such was the majesty of 
of the person whom John saw. He said, I could only do one thing. I had to bow before his majesty. I had to fall on my face as one dead. The response of the Lord Jesus is equally striking. Just as amazing it is that John falls down before this person face first on the ground, prostrate on the ground. Uh, the Lord Jesus is comforting and assuring. He takes that right hand, and it, interestingly, again, you have to think about this for a moment. He, he must have put the stars down for a moment. Yes, the stars on his right hand, but now John is down in front of him on his face. And Jesus takes that same right hand and he puts his hand on John. It is a kind and tender act of the majestic Christ. He put his hand and he said, stop fearing. Uh, they, we, have to, uh, we have to actually supply some of the uh, linguistic principles to understand what's being said. He doesn't, he doesn't just say, don't fear. That's what most of our translations have. But the proper translation is stop fearing. It indicates an activity that was going on. Jesus looks into John. He sees his posture. He sees his face. He can read his heart. And he says, John is full of fear. He's really afraid because there's this majestic one who has just appeared. And he's seeing the seven golden lampstands and the majestic Christ. And not only is he prostrate, but his heart is gripped with fear. And the Lord Jesus puts his hand on him and says, stop fearing. Just what he told Paul to Corinth. And then he further addresses John's faith with the description of himself. A description of himself. Notice how he does it. Verse 18. I'm sorry. Uh, verse, end of verse 17. I am the first and the last. That is, he's the eternal God, the timeless eternal God, the living one. That is the one who has life of himself. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. So here's the description that Jesus makes of himself to John. Things which John probably would have if he had enough sense of mind and time to think about it would have understand about the Lord Jesus Christ. But he describes himself for John. What John is to think of him. How John is to relate to him. And dear brethren, the best remedy for all our, of our fears and concerns, whether they are legitimate concerns or whether they are ill-founded worries, is a fresh vision. I'm not saying uh, in the, with the human eye, with the physical eye, but in the soul, a fresh understanding of the majesty and supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is what we need more than anything else to cause us to understand his greatness, to worship him, and to have a soul properly uh, imbued with and with uh, worship and courage. Worship, faith, and courage. And this is what the Lord Jesus does for John. So that's an overview of the opening vision. 
Second thing I want to do this morning is to set before you from the passage the person who speaks this way to John, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is identified to us by his name, Jesus Christ, in the, in the very opening verses, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Again, verse 2, the testimony of Jesus Christ, which he saw. In verses 5 and 6, John then identifies him, who's giving this these letters to the seven churches from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. And there we have the tie-in, you see, from Revelation chapter 1, back to our meditation this morning about the about God, who is the ruler, Jesus Christ, being God, is the ruler of the kings of the earth. He's the sovereign God of all providence. And so, in, in John, again, who wrote that gospel account, of the gospel, the whole history of the gospel is brought into John's view. This is the one who called me when I was walking, while I was uh, cleaning my nets in the Sea of Galilee, and me and Andrew, and then John and James. This is the one who called us. This is the one of majesty and power who told us, let down your nets for a great cat. In the middle of the day, uh, Galilee was famous for fishing, and daytime was not the best time to catch fish in Galilee. It was nighttime. The nets which they used to catch those fish would be visible to the fish in the daytime, so they probably wouldn't swim into them. But at nighttime, the nets would be invisible. It would be easier to catch fish. But Jesus tells them, let down your net for a great catch. And Peter is, uh, Peter is a little bit nonplussed by this. Remember, uh, John, John the, these guys are nonplussed by this because, Lord, we've fished all night. So let's face it, we're professional fishermen, and you are a carpenter, and, uh, but at your word, I'll do it. And Jesus shows his majesty and his sovereignty in doing that. Well, this is the gospel. And John would have in his, in his mind at least all the resources for all of the events of the great gospel the work of Jesus Christ in healing men and raising the dead, all, all of his uh, wonderful words to his enemies and to his friends, his, uh, his work of redemption, all of these things would be flooding into John's mind. The great works that Jesus had done. We are reminded, of course, in his future return to glory, which he will bring at the appointed end. That's what, that's what John is reminded of, uh, or John reminds the churches in verse 7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him, so it is to be. Amen. So there is a great deal, a great deal of gospel, which is brought to John's mind. And again, we are reminded of his office as the sovereign of the universe in 5b, the ruler of the kings of the earth. That's who Jesus Christ is now in heaven. He is the ruler of the kings of the earth. 
I like to say sometimes when we're getting elections and it's, we're getting towards election time, who's going to decide? Who's going to be in the White House? Who's going to be the next ruler? Well, it's not going to be determined by you and me. And it's not going to be determined by the Electoral College. It's going to be determined by Jesus Christ. Because he's the ruler of the kings of the earth. And what he told Nebuchadnezzar is still true today. He gives the kingdom to whom he wishes. He's the great sovereign and the great king. And again, we are reminded that he is our great high priest. You read those wonderful words of the book of Hebrews in several places that he ever lives to make intercession. We don't have a high priest who cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but one who has been tempted in all points like as we are yet without sin. These are all the truths of this great high priest who has died for us and secured forgiveness and salvation for us. That's what we are reminded of. And then, of course, what we are reminded in the Old Testament tabernacle that Moses was instructed to create this piece of furniture to give light, a seven-branched candelabra. Now, it's very interesting because, you know, one of the functions was to give light in the holy place because the holy place was surrounded by curtains. The sun didn't shine into it. It was separated from the main body of the tabernacle by a thick curtain. They said that that thick curtain was uh, virtually indestructible, but of course the finger of God split it. But it was dark in there. So God assigns a lamp. Set a, a lamp with seven golden candlesticks to give light. Not that God needs the light. You remember in Psalm 139 that David confesses that uh, the light is as bright as the day. God doesn't need the light, but people need the light to see uh, the symbols of God's majesty and salvation is a picture. No, it's a picture. The candelabra is a picture of the people of God who would be a testimony to, to God. Their life, their life, our life was to be a testimony to God and to his grace, one of the tasks, tasks of the priest was to make that candlestick shine brightly so that it would not go out, so the lights would be trimmed, so that the light of the testimony of the people of God would shine before the world. And this is, again, our identity, brethren. What we are being told is that these lampstands are the seven churches. These are the churches and Revelation 2 and 3 show how important the lives of those churches are to our Lord. He's the one watching. He's the one caring for the golden lampstands. He's the one caring for City View Baptist Church. Tending it so that its light is bright. So that the testimony of the gospel is bright and strong. And so we are reminded of our great high priest. We are reminded of his majesty and power. The pictures that we have here are rightly impressive. John tells us about the whiteness of his hair, the whiteness of his hair, and that reminds us of his wisdom. 
Now, the, the wisdom associated with age is one of the things that the Bible makes clear that age has wisdom. Youth needs wisdom, learns wisdom, but age is associated with wisdom, and Jesus is associated with wisdom. The whiteness of his head speaks of wisdom without any of the weakness normally associated with age. He has piercing eyes so that he can see. That's one of the things in the seven letters that when the Lord Jesus sees wickedness in his church, he declares that. He declares that. And he judges his uh, unfaithful ones in the church. And he says, so that everyone will know that I try the hearts. It's a solemn thought. God knows all my thoughts, all your thoughts. He knows every good thought, every desire of service, desire to do good. He sees that all. He also sees all the wickedness of the hearts. Proverbs 15, 3, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, seeing the evil and the good. And this is what John is told about the Lord Jesus. He has eyes like a flame of fire, piercing eyes. He has glowing bronze feet. He's swift. He can get where he needs to go fast. He has the sword of his mouth. He has a powerful voice. Again, these are all symbols of his great greatness. And John tells us of his uh, the way that he acts and speaks. He is marked by majesty, but he also demonstrates his kindness and his goodness through his faithful servant, John, who has been imprisoned for the gospel. He is earnest and clear in his speaking. And the Lord Jesus is determined to reveal the truths which are so needful for his churches. Again, this is the character of our Lord Jesus Christ now. As he deals with us, he wants to communicate the truth of the gospel, the truth of his power, uh, the, the, the truth and power of his ways to care for his church. And these are his concerns, the concerns of the Lord Jesus Christ. Is to make the truth known to his people in a way that will impact their lives. Sometimes when young people go to school, you go to school to learn, hopefully. See your friends, yeah, that's nice. Uh, do some recreation, that's good. But you go there to learn and understand to learn things which will be useful for your life. Believe it or not, algebraic ratios are important for life. The ability to add, subtract, multiply, and divide are practical They're for your life. Sometimes you might go to school and you say, well, I don't know what all this has to do with the life that I'm going to lead in the future. All truth, all truth, especially divine truth, is useful for your life. And the Lord Jesus Christ reveals truth, not, not truth in a youth, useless. Never, never think this way. When you read your Bible and you don't understand, cry to God, Lord, I know what you're doing is giving me truth for life. 
This is not about the distance to Alpha Centauri, which will probably mean nothing to you for the rest of your life, but the truths which God is concerned to communicate through Jesus Christ are vital for all of your life. The Lord Jesus understands the things that are going to be spoken will be difficult to receive, but they will be vital for the glory of God and the good of his people because Jesus is concerned for his church. He does not assign the nurture of his church to anyone else than himself. Yes, servants, Jesus is always working with his servants to accomplish the truth and to instruct his church in the things that they need. And he's concerned to communicate to his church. The people of God joined in that common life that they share. Jesus is determined that they will understand that it is he who is and that he is the one communicating to them and they are his beloved church. So we've looked at the overview of this opening vision. We've looked at the person who thus speaks to John. Now I want to deal with uh, a matter I've dealt with in the past, but I hope that it's still useful to you, a matter of interpretation, and that's the matter of the seven stars. I, I don't know if you remember when we went to uh, the first letter to the seven churches, the church of Ephesus, I made a point of this, but I want to bring it back to your attention. Some of you may not have been here, and it's always good, again, to have our minds refreshed, especially in things that are not clear. Well, the seven lampstands are the seven churches. That's what the Lord Jesus Christ says in verse 20. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. It's going to tell us what these things mean. No, no mystery anymore. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lamps are the seven churches. Well, the, the lampstands are easy. They represent the churches which give the light of the gospel to the world. They have a vital function of giving light. But the stars, you might suppose that the commentators have various opinions about these stars and what these stars are. The Lord Jesus Christ says that these are the angels of the churches. And it's a very unusual idea in the New Testament. Um, the, the idea that there are angels of churches, and there are angels that do various functions performing the will of God, helping the people of God. They are they are messengers sent forth for the help of the people of God, the writer Hebrew says. Well, one of the problems is that word angel, angelos in the Greek, that word angel. It, the word fundamentally means a messenger. I know we're used to hearing the word angel and we're thinking of those beings in heaven that surround God's throne and worship him. Those angels described in Isaiah chapter 6, having six wings with two, they covered their faces because of the majesty of God, reverence for him. With two, they cover their feet because they're standing on holy ground. With two, they fly. Those are the angels. They're described in various ways in the Bible. But the word angel doesn't necessarily mean a being, a heavenly being with wings. It means a messenger. That's the root meaning of the word. The word angel is fundamentally a messenger. Turn to Matthew chapter 11 for a moment. We look at some of the passages that make this 
very clear. Matthew chapter 11 and verse 10. So Jesus is talking about John the Baptist. After the messengers had come to John and went back to John, Jesus asks the multitude who are there, but what did you go out to see? A prophet, verse 9, yes, I tell you, and one who's more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my angelos, my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. So he's quoting Malachi, and he's calling John the Baptist my messenger. Now, John the Baptist is not an angel. He's, he's an odd character, but he's not an angel. He's a messenger. So the, the root meaning of the word angel is messenger. It's used of John the Baptist. And then in Luke chapter 9 and verse 52, please look at that passage. I don't want to just assert, I could tell you what I think about the angels of the seven churches, but I'd rather have you see it in the Bible with your own eyes, because you don't believe because Frank DeWanna says it, or any other human says it. You want to see what the Bible says. So, in Luke 9.52, we have another use of the word angel. So, we read here about Jesus as approaching Jerusalem in verse 51, verse 52. He sent messengers on ahead of him, and they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. But they did not receive him because he was traveling to Jerusalem. Well, use that word messenger again. That's the word angel. You could translate it. And he sent angels on ahead of him. Well, Jesus didn't send, he didn't send actual angels with wings. He sent his servants. He sent some of the apostles. He sent messengers on ahead of him. Now, again, some of the things that you read in pretty reliable commentators is this. They say that it's an odd thing to think of less letters to the churches being written to angels. Because that's what Jesus says. You write these letters to the angel of the church in Ephesus, right? Seven times to the angel of the church in this place or that place. Well, it's an odd thing. Why do you write letters to angels? You write letters to messengers. And the messenger's job is to deliver. So these are messengers. Angels don't deliver them. Human messengers who are themselves prominent members of the assemblies are the ones to whom the letters are written. And if you wonder, is this just something that you thought of, Mr. Dewana, Brother Frank? No. Matthew Poole, Matthew Henry, Albert Barnes, John Gill, Richard Lenski, the Lutheran commentator, all take this position. So I'm not bringing up something original. Matthew Poole defends this interpretation that angels are ministers in this way. He tells us that they cannot be angels because in the letter, seven letters they have things said to them which cannot be said to actual angels. He says, these are his words, to interpret the, the term of angels by nature seems not agreeable to what we shall meet hereafter meet with said to some of them. Christ would never have ordered John to have charged them with the loss of their first love. Angels don't lose their first love. They don't leave their first love. 
uh, people do. So that's one of his arguments, Matthew Poole. Matthew Poole says Christ never would have ordered John to charge them with the loss of their first love, to admonish them to be faithful unto death because angels don't die, or to repent. So these are the ways in which Matthew Poole underscores the fact that angels make sense as messengers, but not as heavenly beings. So that's the matter of interpretation. And then when you read through the letters to the seven churches, you can understand the language which is being used. Well, that's how we have proceeded through the passage. John's circumstances, the one who speaks, the matter of interpretation. Now, what does all of this say to us? Here we are in the year 2024. It's almost shocking to say it. The year 2024 on Flatbush Avenue in Brooklyn. What does this have to say to us? There are four things I want to set before you in the light of what we have seen in Revelation chapter 1. Four things. First of all, is the folly of dismissing Jesus Christ. Many of you would not dream of saying it's unimportant what Jesus says. But I suspect, even in the congregation this small, there may be people, young or old, who would be of a mind to dismiss Jesus Christ. Who really cares what Revelation 1, 9 to 20 says? I hope that's not your disposition. It would be a grave mistake. He's the one who determines the life and destiny of every person. It was a, a rather crude poet who said, I am the captain of my fate. I am the master of my soul. He says, I thank whatever gods there be from my unconquerable soul. Do you think you're in charge? Do you think you're in charge of your life? Do you think you can determine where your next steps go. I remember as a young boy, I had that idea. People would ask me, what are you going to do, Frank? Well, I'm going to finish high school, and then I'm going to go to college, some place where I can study astronomy, a favorite subject. And, and, and when I graduate with high marks, I'm going to work at the Mount Palomar Observatory, and I'm going to be a student of the stars. But it hadn't happened. You think, you think you're in control? You think what's your next step? You don't know if you're going to get, going to get home today. Amen. Much less what you're going to do. The one who's in charge of your life is not you. It's Jesus Christ. The Bible makes it very clean, clear. The book of Revelation makes it very clear. There are many forces at work in this world, and they are all subordinate to the power and purpose of Jesus Christ. Don't dismiss Jesus Christ. Learn to understand the power and majesty and sovereignty of Jesus Christ. It's foolish to dismiss Jesus Christ. Number two, see to it that you view life in our church. You view your life, our life as a church, and your life as a Christian in the light of the Lord 
as he is presented to us here. This vision did not take much time to go through. I tried to be very plain and clear in describing what was happening. But this is the way we need to see ourselves and our life by the word of the living God. It's a great help to faith to think of our Savior as he is presented to us here in the gospel. And uh, very helpful to see the Lord Jesus in his dealings with men, with his instructions and his rebukes and his works. But let me suggest that Revelation chapter 1 verses 9 to 20 must not be forgotten by believers. The Christ of the gospel history is the Christ in heaven who cares for his church. He cares. His great concern is with the truth that he has revealed to come to the hearts and minds of his people. It's that their light should shine. Like Jesus said while he was walking on earth, let your light so shine that men may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. That's what Jesus wants from you as a Christian. Pray to him as your great high priest, the sovereign of the universe. Pray to him in that light. Trust in him according to this presentation. Consider the challenges you face in this way and the decisions that you make in the light of his glory. What, what are your plans and hopes? Maybe, maybe at the beginning of 2024 you had some resolutions. We know what happens to resolutions. Few of them are really kept for a long period of time. By the middle of the year, you won't even remember your resolutions. I get most of you won't. I won't. I'm sure of it. How will you make your decisions? The one thing you must not forget is who this Jesus Christ is, your Savior, whom you serve, whom you live before. And you want to make sure that whatever decisions you make, shall I move? Shall I buy a house? Shall I get married? Shall I remain single? Lord Jesus Christ, teach me your will. You're my master. You're my sovereign. You're in control. I submit my plans to you. Consider all of these things, all of your decisions, in the light of his glory. That's number two. Number three, highly value the word of God. Highly value the word of God. Because the word of God is the word of this Lord Jesus Christ. All the word of God is the word of Christ to his people. Beware of things that you value. Good gifts. They may dull your appetite for the word of God. I know uh, I know a man who is an artist, a very good artist. I've seen his paintings. I've seen his sculpture. And he's given it all up. Because he said... It's preoccupying me, and my heart is really wed to my artwork and not to my Savior. So if my artwork competes with my Savior, the artwork has to go. And you know, people let a lot of other things preoccupy their minds and hearts that have nothing to do with glorifying God. Who cares if you get a high score on some solitaire game on your computer? 
insignificant. You'd be better off spending your time seeking to understand the word of God better. Of course, the evil things that you can see. And you may say, oh, I'd like to see that. What will it matter? If it's rejected by Jesus Christ, if it's worthless and vile in the face of Jesus Christ, why would you, why would you chase that? Chase the word of God is a, is a nice proverb. A sated man, it's a guy who's full, he's eaten a, maybe a big turkey dinner. A sated man loads honey, but to a famished man, any bitter thing is sweet. Man is full, offer him a teaspoon of honey from the honeycomb. Ugh, can't, can't take any more. A man who is really hungry is hungry for the things that truly satisfy and for Christians, that's the Word of God. Highly value the Word of God. And if you're not a Christian, believe me, one day you will appear before God in judgment. And the, the things that you value now will mean nothing to you. The face of that majestic Christ you will be before, and he will either say, come ye blessed, or depart ye cursed. Why value the Word of God. Again, think of the church and the way Jesus Christ thinks of it. He is concerned he, uh, for his blood-bought church. He esteems and highly regards his blood-bought church. Many people think of their relationships with Lord Jesus in a way that takes very little account of the church. Don't, don't walk that way, dear brethren. Highly value the church. Highly value it. Pray for the church. Give yourselves to prayer for the church. Expect God to bless his church. The Lord Jesus Christ has determined to accomplish his highest purposes by caring for the church and using the church. And that's underscored by this book. The whole book, the book of Revelation, nonetheless. His highest purposes are for his church. Therefore, your highest purposes ought to be for your church as well. Somebody objects. But the church is such a weak entity with so many liabilities and imperfections. I have no interest in denying that. It's undeniably true. And that means that we should labor by the grace of God to strengthen the church so that she will be better able to serve the church and to accomplish her role. And Christ has appointed the church and gifted the church so that the church will be able to do his will and therefore dear brethren we need to believe in our Savior we ought to have that same zeal for the church of Jesus Christ which the King of Heaven has is that your heart's disposition dear brethren is that the way you think of the church is that where your ambitions are God grant that we may be strengthened to labor for the church for the glory of Jesus Christ Dear Lord Jesus, we bow before you and we thank you for the things that our ears have heard. We pray, our God, that you will invest them with greater and greater power so that as we think of this passage, as we think of the word of God, as we think of you, the King of Heaven, our hearts will be more and more impressed with your greatness 
and your majesty and our zeal to serve you. Give us increasing faith, give us increasing zeal, and do good to your church. Bless City View Baptist Church and, and all of the churches of Jesus Christ. Bless them and cause the lamps to shine brightly and call in the nations for the glory of your great name. Please hear our prayers, our Father. We, we cannot accomplish them apart from your grace, but we do trust in you and in your grace. So make us, we pray, your faithful, effective servants. We ask through Jesus and for his glory. Amen. Amen.